Thanks for tuning in to the preaching and teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach with Pastor Dave Delaney. Romans and chapter number nine this morning. And uh, we are in a study walking our way through the book of Romans, a study that we began at the beginning part of this year. And uh, now in our course of study, we've come now to Romans chapter number nine and Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11. And just by way of admission, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are some of the more difficult passages of the book of Romans to be able to interpret. If, if Romans 8 is the diamond jewel on which the book of Romans rests, well then Romans 9, 10, and 11 are some deep trenches and oceans in which we endeavor to walk. I told Chad and Michael just in preparation, we do a lot of collaboration normally when we are working through a series like this. And I told them, I said, can't we just skip Romans 9, 10, and 11? I said, Pastor, it's your motto, next chapter, next verse. I said, You're good. you guys are good for nothing. Get out of my office, right? I would encourage you to make sure you, you, you carve out, make a priority. And I know that you do, but make sure that you make a priority these next few weeks. Because I believe the truths that are revealed to us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 are some of the most foundational in understanding how God is at work in the world. How is God at work in the world? How does God work in the world? Who are the people that God chooses to work through and in and with? All of that is unpacked in in Romans chapter number 9 and in Romans chapter number 10. We're going to begin this morning in Romans chapter number 9. We're going to go verse 1 down to verse 3. But we're going to read all five of the very first verses because they set, as it were, an understanding for why Paul is about to say everything else he is. And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of the word of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 5. So this is the Apostle Paul who is writing this. Still his pen. This is still his letter. And it's his letter to the church at Rome. That's everything we've already covered in this study. Verse 1. That I say the truth. So you can... You get an input in there. The Apostle Paul says the truth. Now, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The word kinsmen, is not, it's not a word that we use very often, but the word kinsmen would be my, uh, the people of my nation. So, so my, my national people, the people of where I'm from, my country, the people of my country. That's how kinsmen is understood. So he's saying, 
my kinsmen or my nation. So he uses the word my brethren. You see that word, my brethren? He's not speaking of brothers in Christ as another believer. He's speaking of my brethren as in my the people of my country, the people of my birth, my kinsmen, the people of where I'm from. Look at verse 4. Who are his kinsmen? Who are his brothers? Who are Israelites? See that in verse 4? So I could wish that myself were accursed for my brothers, my people, my nation, my kinsmen, my countrymen, according to the flesh, the people of who I'm born to, the people group that I belong to, who are Israelites. To whom? So what belongs to the Everything he's about to tell you. This belongs to the Israelites. This makes them uniquely them. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God. You can understand the word service as the worship of God. So temple service, temple worship of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Who concerning the flesh, Christ came. So Christ came by way of the Jewish people. That's what he's saying. Christ came by way of the Jewish people. Christ in the flesh. God in flesh by way of the Jews. That is what we will celebrate at Christmas, which is in nine weeks. Just wanted to give your heart some palpitations right there. Some of you, oh my goodness, nine weeks. We celebrate at Christmas the coming of Christ in the flesh through Mary, and they are distinctively Jewish. It's important. It says who he is in his, in his humanity. But listen to what he says. Who he is, Christ, who Christ is in his deity. So Christ in his humanity, Christ came in the flesh through the Jewish people, but Christ in his deity, look at, Christ came who is overall God blessed forever. So he says three things about Christ. The subject there rests in the middle, not at the beginning. We construct sentences with the, with the subject at the beginning. Their, their writing isn't constructed the same way. They're, the subject of the verse is Christ in the flesh. So the subject, Christ, teaching us Christ in the flesh, that's Christ in his humanity. But the subject also then gets all of these descriptors. Listen to who Christ is. Christ is in the flesh by way of the Jewish people. Christ is over all. Christ is God and Christ is blessed forever. Amen. So we believe Christ is both 100% man born of Mary by Jewish descent. And then we believe Christ is 100% God. He's over all. He is God and he's blessed forever. Amen. Right? So we believe about Christ. That's not the point of the sermon today. That's next week. 
The point of the sermon today is verse 1, 2, and 3. I just couldn't pass up. That's just too good to pass up. And Paul is saying, this is my burden for my people that they would come to know Christ. This is my burden for my people that they would come to know Christ. So it's a simple question. Who are you burdened about? Who are you burdened for that they would come to know Christ? Who is that person in your life who does not yet know Christ, but who needs to know the grace extended to us by way of Christ? Our Heavenly Father, use your word this morning in our hearts and lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. So Paul is about to give us this very large understanding of how God is at work in the world. And God is specifically at work in the world by way of a promised Messiah. You need to understand that. God is at work in the world specifically by way of a promised Messiah. And he promised that the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? It is Jesus wrapped in flesh, born of Mary, and then stepfathered by Joseph. That is who Christ is. And Paul has been preaching Christ. He's preached him and him crucified. It's the grace of God extended to all men. You want to understand the grace of God? Do you want to know what the love of God looks like? The love of God does not look like the promotion. The love of God does not look like everything going perfect in your life. The love of God does not look like the bonus. The love of God does not look like fame and popularity and power. The love of God looks like this. It looks like Christ, born of a virgin Mary, lived a perfect sinless life, died a death that was not his to die on a cross that he did not belong in order to make you and me recipients of the grace that God God is offering to us. And Paul has been preaching that sermon for eight chapters in Romans. Paul hasn't just been preaching for eight chapters in Romans. Romans is one of the final books that Paul writes. Paul is about to leave this world, and Romans is one of the last books, not the last one, but it's one of the last ones that he writes. And all of those who are of Jewish descent have a distaste for Paul's sermon. And they have a distaste for Paul's message. And the reason they have a distaste for Paul's message is because it feels very anti-Jewish. As Paul has said things like this, that Christ did not come for the Jews only, but that he came for all of those who would believe. If Paul has said things like, Christ did not come of any moral goodness inside of the Jewish people, Christ came despite all of their sinfulness. That was Romans chapter number three. Paul says it's both Jew and Gentile who need Christ. It's both Jew and Gentile who are lost. It's both religious and unreligious who need Christ. It's all of us who are sinners. 
And none of us are made righteous. None of us are brought into the family of God. None of us receive the love of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ said this himself. And no man comes to the Father but by me. The only way to get to God is through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has preached this message in every place and in every city that he's been. And because he's preached this message, he has awarded to himself all kinds of enemies. In particular, those who are strict in their Judaism. In fact, they have accused Paul of blasphemy. They've scourged Paul. They whipped Paul. They beat Paul. They drug Paul out of their cities and out of their synagogues. They stoned him. They left him for dead on an occasion. They accused him before Caesar. They accused him to the political authorities of the day, saying, this man is causing all kinds of problems. And that's actually what it causes Paul in the end to be arrested. He says, you all have no power to kill me of your own because I'm a dual citizen. I'm a citizen not just of Israel. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's true. But I'm also a citizen of Rome. So I appeal to Caesar. So they take Paul. They put him in shackles. They arrest him. He becomes a political prisoner. And they put him on a ship. And then they send him across the Mediterranean in order to have him judged and executed and tried in Rome itself. So Paul is pleading this way. And, and, and there's all kinds of people in Paul's day who've, de- who've developed this, this hatred toward him because they feel as if he's undermining the, the truth that they believed about God. And that is that they were by themselves, of themselves, very special people who were not like the pagans, who were not like the, un- the unreligious, who were not like those who did awful and wicked things. No, we're Jewish, so we have a specific place. And we're saved by way of our heritage. We're saved by way of our pedigree. We're saved by way of our father, Abraham. And Paul dismantles that argument in all of this chapter. He says, none of us are saved because of who our parents were. All of us come to an understanding of who Christ is and an acceptance by faith of that Christ on our own. There are no second generation Christians. You don't become a Christian because your parents were a Christian. You become Christian because you, of your own volition and your own choice, see Christ for who he is, understand all that Christ has done, and by faith, put your, by grace, put your faith in Christ so that you are one of his own. God has no grandchildren. You're either his child or you're not. This has happened sometimes in churches like this. And we can, we can assume that, oh, we're, we're, we're Christian too because our Christian, our parents were Christians before us. Oh, well, we're, we're, we're religious. We go to church. My mom and dad brought me up in church. I'm here at church on Sunday. I went to Sunday school at connection group hour. So that must mean that I'm also saved. Now listen, listen. Every person in this room has to come of their own individual choice to choose to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Who your mommy and daddy are has no bearing of your eternal destiny. 
The only weight of your eternal destiny is what have you done with Christ? Who is he to you? Who is he to you? We can make the same mistake even in a, in a country like ours. America, the great Christian nation. The, the great Christian nation. The nation that's founded on Judeo-Christian principles. In God we trust. We write across our monuments and our money. So we must be Christian because we're in a Christian nation. I mean, everybody in America loves Jesus. This is some people's perspective of America. And then you get to America and you realize that that's not the way that it is. It was no different in Paul's day. And so what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are is an unpacking of the way that God is at work in and through the Jewish people by way of Christ. And when they heard that message, hear me on this, and when they heard that message, they stumbled at it. Look, fast forward to the end of chapter number nine. Look at verse number 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, so someone not Jewish, that's what a Gentile means. So that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, they have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness, which is of faith. So, so people who did not go after the law, live after the covenants, do fulfill the promises, worship at the temple. These people who did not go after righteousness, they attained a righteousness. How did they attain a righteousness? They attained a righteousness by faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The only way anyone is saved, the only way anyone is a believer, the only way anyone is a Christian is not because who their parents were. It's not because of what they posted in their profile on their social media page. It's because they've placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that alone is what has allowed them to attain a righteousness which is not their own. Look look at the next verse. Look at verse 31. But Israel. He's talking about the nation, the people now. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, they have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, why? Why is that? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. That's an interesting phrase. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. That's that's speaking specifically of Christ. The stumbling stone is a reference to Christ, his person and his work. They tripped over. They fell at the stone of who Christ was. They they tripped over the rock of ages. That's what he's saying. They stumbled over the rock of ages. Verse 33, and as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him. Circle that word, on him. So the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, is speaking of a specific person. That's the personal pronoun, him. And the him there is Christ, who he told us about in verse number four and in verse number five. So who did the Jewish people trip over? Who did they fall at? They, they tripped over 
Christ in that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Remember that verse? He came to his own and his own said, no, thank you. We don't want what you are offering us because what was Christ's message? Christ's message was not that God will save you because of your goodness. Christ's message is God saves us despite all of the badness. And the Jewish people can't get out of their mind this idea of this self-righteousness which is accomplished by works. And by the way, that's not just a Jewish issue. That's our issue too. Sometimes what what we trip over, what we fall over, what we stumble over is the idea that God sent Christ to die on the cross for sinful men of who I am chief. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I get the the best sinner award. And oftentimes when we view our own righteousness, we view our own selves, we say things like, well, we're not that bad. And you should know, because I know what she did, and I know what he did, and I know what they said. I'm not that bad of a person. Look, I'm at church. I give to the poor. I help the needy. I read my Bible. I'm kind to my neighbor. I don't cuss too much in traffic. You have to, you have to add too much. So that's why I'm saved. Listen, God did not save you because of your goodness. God saved you in spite of your badness. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's you and that's me. Even the guy you're listening to talk. We've all sinned. The wages of that sin is death. Separation from God. A separation from God by way of death, not just physical death. There's a death that's worse than physical. And Jesus says, do not fear him that kills the body. No, no, fear him that can kill the body and the soul in hell. Wages of sin is death, and that sin is what separated us from God. That one day we die physically, we all know that. We're not as young as we used to be. Takes a lot more Advil to get us through the morning. Takes a lot more coffee. Parts of our body hurt that we didn't even know could hurt. You remember when you were young and you'd go to Walgreens or CVS and you'd look at all these rows of medicine and you'd only see older people down those rows? You're like, what do they need all these creams for? What are these gels for? Who would need all these bandages and wraps? The other day I'm standing, I'm like, I need something for my back. And I'm looking up and down these things. I look down, these two teenagers down the road, they're just looking at me. This guy's old. I've become that guy. Just walked out of there, just like I can muscle through, just another cup of coffee. I don't need, don't need any more of those creams. Just more coffee. We're all aware that we aren't as young as we used to be. We're all aware that we're dying physically. 
But are you aware of a second death that's worse than the first? The second death, the Bible says in Revelation, takes place in a lake of fire, completely separated from God Almighty, in a place that the Bible refers to as hell, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm dies not, rejected because you rejected God. It's a very important distinction to make. Paul says his countrymen are accursed. He does not say they are not loved. No, they were loved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God commendeth his love toward us. God proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They don't go to hell because they are unloved. They go to hell because they reject the love that God displayed in Christ. Do you want to know how deep you're loved? Look at Christ. You want to know how vast you're loved? Look at Christ. You want to know how much you are loved? Look at Christ. Look at what he did. Look at the sacrifice he paid. Look at the way in which he laid his life down of his own choice for you and for me. And then surrender once and for all to that love. Oh, but they tripped at the stumbling stone. They, they tripped over the rock of offense that when they heard the message of the love of God, they said, we don't want God's love. We will fulfill God's law. We, we, don't, we don't need God to save us in our badness. We will just earn our own goodness. And because of that, Paul says, his countrymen have become accursed, rejected, because they have rejected him who died for them. Well, that was all introduction. Hopefully you don't have lunch plans. No, I'm just teasing. Let me, let me give you three points. We'll go quick. Let me give you three. What is this, what is this, what is this concern? What is this compassion from Paul? Where does it come from? It comes from three things. Notice number one. Notice the authenticity of his compassion. Notice the authenticity of his compassion. That's verse number one. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So, so you see the authenticity of it. That authenticity is seen in several ways. Notice because first, Paul was a man of honesty. Paul was a man of honesty. That's how he begins. I say the truth. So Paul's concern for his countrymen was coming from in a, a place of honesty, a, a place of truthfulness. It's coming from an understanding of the truth. What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
So, so Paul's understanding, Paul's concern for his countrymen who are separated from the love of Christ, Paul's understanding of that comes from a place of honesty. I say the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Not, not his own truth, but the truth. The truth that was revealed to him by way of the Lord Jesus himself. There's no abstract, there's no abstract truth. Truth is truth. Right is right, wrong is wrong, right? So is Bob Jones Sr. said it like that. Yeah. Do right till the stars fall. Do right. Now why can you say do right till the stars fall? Because right is always right and wrong is always wrong and truth is not subjective. We don't, we don't preach a subjective truth. Well, pastor, that's just your interpretation of religion. That's just your interpretation of eternal life. That's just your interpretation of... No, 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 this is not my interpretation. This is not our church's interpretation. This is what the Word of God says. We stand on the truth. So Paul's concern for his countrymen stands wholly on the truth. He's a man of honesty. He's a man of integrity. Look at the next phrase, in Christ. When you use a phrase like in Christ, what you're saying is Christ as my witness. Christ who is omniscient. Christ who is in me and I am in him. Christ who, who understands the position of my own heart. Christ who is the orbit of my emotions. Christ. I'm telling you the truth in him with him as my witness, as a man of integrity. Third, he's a man of transparency. Look at the next phrase. I lie not. So he's a man of honesty. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of transparency. He's saying, you can look right through me, that in me, in my speech, there is no guile, there is no deceit, there is no manipulation, there's no twisting of what was delivered to me. He's a man of, of honesty, a man of integrity, a man of transparency. Letter D, he's a man of sincerity. Look, look at the phrase. My conscience also bearing me witness. My conscience also bearing me witness. So here's a question. Can you trust your conscience? Can we, like, like Jiminy Cricket and Disney teach us, let your conscience be your guide? No! No, you can't trust your conscience. Why? Because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You, you don't even know how you feel about how you feel. So how can you trust how you feel? This happens to us all the time. And yet Paul arguing here for this, for the sake of sincerity, he's saying, my conscience is clean. And while we cannot trust our conscience, and while we do not allow our conscience to be our guide, God's word is our guide. His truth is our lamp. It's a light to our feet. We, it is also true that because the Holy Spirit resides in us, that the Holy Spirit can commend or the Holy Spirit can convict. And that's a word that we don't hear very often. The Holy Spirit can commend and the Holy Spirit can 
convict. So if the Holy Spirit resides in us, that when we go walking in a way that is not the truth, it is not right, it is wrong, the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts pricks our hearts, convicts our hearts, causes us to have a realization that, man, what I'm about to say to my boss or my friend or my spouse, I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know that this is the kindest thing, but here I go. And at that moment, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Convicting you. That's not, a, listen, that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. When in your conscience, you feel pricked, sticked, you, you feel conviction, you feel that sting that says, ah, oh, that probably wasn't what Christ would have done. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because that means Christ's spirit, the Holy Ghost, is in you and speaking to you. Actually, if you don't feel that, then it's a bad thing. You understand that? Okay, if you can just go on sinning without ever feeling the sting of conviction, if you can just go on maligning and, and lying and gossiping, and if you can just go on in bitterness, and if you can just go on in self-indulgence, and if you can just go on your own way, having your own self as your own God, and never feel the sting of conviction, then it should really cause you to wonder if you are really his and if he's really in you and if you're really in him. The sting of conviction is a good thing, not a bad thing. We shouldn't pull away from it. We should walk toward it and we should say, okay, Lord, I know that as soon as I responded incorrectly, I felt that stick in my heart, that, that sting of that's probably not the way that Christ would have handled that situation or that's, that's not the way that I know God's word would have me to treat him or her. This is not the way in which God would want me to use. We should not walk away from that. We should walk toward that. That's what Paul is saying. He's walking toward the sting of his conscience. He's saying, I'm not saying my conscience is my guide. What I am saying is free of the sting of conviction. I can tell you, I am not lying to you. I have a desire and a love for you to know the love of God. That's, that's just not commendable. That's, that's admirable. Paul's a man of authenticity because he's a man of honesty. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of transparency. He's a man of sincerity with, with no sting. With no sting, I can tell you, I want you to know who God is. But look at this last one. He's a man of godliness. He's a man of godliness. That's the last phrase. In the Holy Ghost. So as we live in the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, as we obey the Spirit, well then, we come under the control of the Spirit. That's, that's everything Romans 8. It's everything we spent time in Romans 8 trying to understand. He's a man of godliness. The authenticity of Paul's concern. Number two, look at the intensity of Paul's concern. This is verse number two. That I have 
great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Can, can we just pull the car over for a second? Can we, can we think about that phrase? I have great heaviness and continual sorrow. What is it that just wrecks you? What, what is it that just brings great sorrow and heaviness to your life? What is it, what is it that you just say, oh, that just weighs me down? That's how we express those same things that Paul just expressed in verse 2. Oh, this is just crushing me. This is wrecking me. This is heavy on me. What is it that brings that to your life? What is it that brings that to your heart? Because whatever that is, well, that is what you love. You see, the reason Paul can say, I have this great heaviness, this is wrecking me, this is heavy in me, this is, this is crushing me, this is continually before me, because Paul loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, whatever crushes you, whatever breaks you, whatever wrecks you, that has become your God. If it's always in front of you, this is the continual sorrow of my heart that I don't get the corner office. This is the continual sorrow of my heart that I don't have this wonderful relationship. This is the heaviness of my life that I just need more money to make things happen. This is just what breaks me down, what flattens me out, what just wrecks my day if my car won't start. Right? You see what we're holding up? That's an evidence of what we're holding up. That's an evidence of what we're going after. That's an evidence of what we're pursuing. It's an evidence of what we love. Why can Paul say, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm flattened by this, I'm wrecked by this, I'm crushed by this, that you might know Christ. Why can Paul say that? Because that is the way in which Paul saw God. God, he went after God. He pursued strong after the Lord. He went, he went after the Lord with all of his heart, not counting himself to have apprehended, but forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth in those things which are before. Paul was pressing toward the mark. It's this great heaviness in my heart. Do you see the intensity of it? What crushes you is your God. What flattens you is what you love. Does your heart break the way God's heart breaks? Do you love the things that God loves? Paul loves the things that God loves. God's heart is broken over those who reject him. And because Paul loves God, Paul loves the things that God loves. And God's and Paul's heart breaks because God's heart breaks. Now God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look at the, the intensity. Notice the level of his compassion. That's letter A. Great heaviness. Look through the length of his compassion, continual sorrow. He'll say later on, night and day, I've labored for you. You were the first thing I thought about in the morning. You're the last thing I thought about at night. Night and day, I labored for you. The level of his compassion, the length of his compassion, the labor of his compassion. Do you feel anguish? Sorrow, concern, 
compassion over the people in your life who do not know Christ? Does it bother you that your co-workers do not know Christ? Could you say like Paul, that's a continual sorrow in my heart. I'm not talking generally. Last week we considered what we would do as a church for the cause of worldwide evangelization. That's an important thing for us as a church to take time every year to consider. I'm not talking generally. Well, our church has missionaries. Yeah, we do. I'm not talking generally. I'm talking specifically. I'm not asking you if you help support the cause of evangelizing the world. I'm asking you, what are you doing in your office? What about your neighbor? What about your son or daughter, your mom or dad, your aunt or uncle? Does it break your heart that they do not know Christ? Why, why, do, you, why do you suppose God placed you at that job? But why do you suppose God gave you acceptance to that college? Why do you suppose God placed you in that neighborhood? Why do, you, why do you suppose God has done all those things for you, strategically placed you in, in positions of work, employment, in office, at your school, at your college? Why do you suppose God placed you in this city? Why do you suppose God gave you that car? For security's sake? For comfort's sake? For convenience sake? So that we, so that we can live a life of, of ease and safety? We live in big houses. We drive nice cars. And we're settling for some version of Christianity that revolves around ourselves. That all of these things God has given to me just so I can go on enjoying life, living the American dream. Get rich, retire early, live wealthy, die, and let the grandkids fight over it all. That's what happens, just so you know. That family heirloom that you think really really mean something, your kids sell for 50 cents at the yard sale when you're gone. I'm asking you to consider that the central message of the Bible and the central message of the Apostle Paul is that we should not be catering to ourselves, but we should actually be looking to abandon ourselves. And we should realize that the city, the job, the, 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 the office, the, 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 the rec league you're in, the associations you have, the schools you attend, all of these things, God has strategically placed you there as a light in a very dark place. And if your heart is not breaking for them, well then whose heart will? And if you are not a witness, well then who will be and if you do not pray for them and care for them and serve them and preach to them and witness to them then who will 
You see, we have to see all of these gifts not as self-serving, but as enabling us to preach the gospel in places and regions and streets and offices and businesses and to lives that we would not have otherwise ever been able to preach to. You encounter people every week of your life who would not give me as a pastor the time of day. But they'll listen to you. They'll pay attention to what you have to say. We must see all of these gifts are only for us to be able to glorify and praise our God because He alone is worthy. Don't see your life as a simple fulfillment of the American dream. It's no dream at all. It's a nightmare. More money, more problems. No, 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 don't see your life as a pursuit of just accumulating and accumulating and accumulating and positioning and positioning and positioning and self-serving and self-serving and self-serving. No, see your life as the great expense of letting all those around you know that God is good, that God is love, and that God desires to be their father, forgive their sins, and secure and reserve for them a place in heaven. Be a light in the darkest place possible. That's that's what we want to see in our city. This is the great hope that we as a church have. Yeah. Yeah, the city is dark. And yes, sin is great. And yes, men are wicked. But the light of the gospel shines over and through it all. And oh, that God would use us to help to shine that light until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Let's just be a light until the true light calls us home. That's how you should see all the gifts that God's given to you. Let me give you the last one. We've got to get out of here. Look at the reality of his concern. Look at verse 3. I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. No man, no man can take your damnation away from you except the one man who is the Lord Jesus Christ. No man can offer you forgiveness of sins except the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. No man can die for the world except the one man who is Jesus Christ. 
Paul cannot suffer the pains of judgment for others. You cannot suffer the pain of judgment for others. But Christ can and Christ did. And it is this Christ that they have rejected which has caused them to find themselves accursed. The word accursed is anathema. Pulled away, separated, removed. Accursed. This is the great paradox with Christ. Because although they are accursed, removed, separated from God, it is Christ who came to this earth and was cursed for us. You see that? They don't have to be accursed. They don't have to be separated from God. And yet they are, and they are because they've rejected the one who took the curse for them. Christ took the curse of sin for you and for me so that you and I would not have to know what it is to bear the curse of sin. Christ did not just do this for you and for me. Christ did this for all of the world. For all of those who would believe. This is my question for you then. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope this was a blessing to you. For more information about First Baptist Church and sermons from Pastor Dave Delaney, please visit us at www.fbclb.org.